Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to episode 85 of the Marathon Running Podcast. In this episode, we're going to bust some myths <laughs> about your body and the mechanics of it. This is the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan from We Got The Runs. Join us in our running community for weekly content that is motivational, educational, and inspirational and let the marathon running podcast take you from the starting line to the finish line and beyond hey runners and hey ryan hi lady why are you laughing at me i'm laughing at you trying to say myths say it five times fast i can't say that word mists there's a lot of extra at the end there <laughs> okay mists 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 Mist is in the morning. <laughs> it's all right. It can make fun of you because you can speak like five languages to my one. <laughs> I have no room to talk. One word you mess up. <laughs> I was trying to find an alternative word for, for that, but I, I'm unable to come up with one. So this is what we're stuck with for today. Yeah. Anyway, we're Ryan and Letty. We have our weekly running podcast where we talk about all things marathoning or shorter distances. And we tried to bring you the experts when it comes to nutrition, training, and today we're going to talk to a physical therapist. Who's the guest? Natalie Nimchik, and she is a physical therapist and has a place in New York where she does that for a living. Interesting because she, I found her on Instagram. She does really cool reels that are fun and informative. So I reached out to her and she was very willing to come on. That's cool. So Ryan, for you as a semi-runner, <laughs> what are some things that, I mean, obviously you work in medicine, but what are some things that you hear people talk about that you believe are not true when it comes to running? Um, I mean, medically wise, I think they don't tell the whole story when people say, you know, running will make your knees go bad or your joints deteriorate. In some cases it can happen. If somebody is just prone to degenerative change or already has it or has injuries in the past or other stuff, it, it can potentially worsen your degenerative change. But it's definitely not universal because there's plenty of people that run boatloads of miles and don't have degenerative change, whereas others don't run at all and do have degenerative change. So Yes, that's one of them. And there's about nine more that we talked to her about. And figured out the truth about these set misconceptions. See, there's a word instead of myths. <laughs> Letty, what are some other myths? So another few that we have is strength training. You know, whether or not it's important, whether you need to stretch and hold stretches. We talked about side stitches. We talked about barefoot running. And um, the fact that people say every runner gets injured, it's just a matter of time. We talked about flexibility, hill striking, running cadence, and whether or when resting will make you lose fitness. If you rest long enough, you lose fitness. It's kind of an obvious one, but I mean, I think it's more that runners, as runners, we feel nervous about working out really hard. And then we have a little nag going on and even taking a couple of days off sometimes makes us feel not so good about ourselves because we think, oh, all this stuff, all these runs I've done and how fit I've gotten, that's all going to go away very quickly. So, you know, it's more of a timing thing than anything. Yeah, it can be hard. Yeah. Just like for you, you haven't run in a couple of weeks. Are you, are you, are you scared of losing your fitness? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I've done uh, I've done some other things, but I would prefer to do more exercise than I get a chance to do. Bound to go wow wow. So anyway, so are you ready for our guest? Yeah. All right. So without any further ado, we are now going to listen to our conversation with Natalie Nemchuk. 
All right. So I'm here with Natalie Nimtech. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited. Of course. So for our runners that haven't heard of you nor seen your Instagram, can you introduce yourself and let us know how you became an expert in the field? Okay. I am Dr. Natalie, um, the run doc. Um, so I I'm a doctor of physical therapy. I graduated um, from Stony Brook University in 2015. Um, I've been practicing mostly outpatient orthopedic since then. And the past few years, I really wanted to. Um, I've been a runner. I, I played lacrosse in college. And then after college, I just I kept running. I started doing half marathons, things like that. So I've been a runner now for about 13 years. And I really wanted to focus and hone in on runners. So I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a certified running technique specialist, a RRCA running coach. I also am a certified um, canine rehab practitioner. That's also a few years ago. I did that. I used to work with canines and everything. It was awesome. Um, So I really wanted to make sure that I covered the, the gamut of not only running injury, but um, injury prevention, coaching, and the strengthening side. So I, I really wanted to encompass everything that if any runner had a question, I'd be able to answer it despite, you know, whatever it may be. And then I opened my practice revolution running physical therapy. I opened in April. I'm on Long Island and it's so exciting and it's the coolest thing ever. And I, I just, I love it so much. <laughs> That's awesome. You can tell that you love it. And uh, I feel like we're in really good hands with your expertise and that you've uh, narrowed it down to running so much. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. So we have you on today, maybe to just kind of do a little bit of myth busting because there's so many info, so much information out there for runners. And we have a lot of new runners about what happens when you run. And so I kind of just wanted to go through the top 10 running myths. Of course, I would love to. (laughs) So we'll start with the probably most common one, or you can probably tell us more about that, but running damages your knees. That's the one that we hear always. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like um, a lot of people or or non-runners, if if you tell them you're having some kind of knee pain, they're like, oh man, it's it's so bad for your knees, the pounding on the on the pavement, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I do feel like that's that's very common, um, a, a common thought. So they've done research and even like the most recent research, they do not see a correlation between running and knee osteoarthritis. Because when we think of damage of the knees, we're thinking of osteoarthritis because that's the um, the wearing down of the cartilage between two bones. So when you're thinking about, they're talking about damage over the long term, that's that's what ten, people tend to think about is that internal um, cartilage damage. And they see no correlation between running, recreational running and any kind of knee osteoarthritis. Um, Richard Willey is a great researcher and he just actually shared some information about that and how, um, it actually might be providing more of a protective effect against the development of knee and hip osteoarthritis. So, and the, the other suggestion, um, that is out there though, is that people who do have more symptomatic osteoarthritis, or if you, you know, already have osteoarthritis and you started running, they just suggest maybe putting in more recovery bouts. So maybe spacing out your runs um, to every other day or something like that. So it's not as frequent to let those symptoms kind of um, relieve themselves before you run again, but they don't see that that's going to increase the, the osteoarthritis that someone may already have, or it may cause someone to have osteoarthritis. There's no research to support that. Perfect. So we're safe to say we can continue running on that one. So scratch this first one. And (laughs) (laughs) the second one I have is that strength training isn't that important. Um, I'm kind of culprit of that one too, because I love running and I can run outside for hours. But then when it comes to just doing a tiny bit, five minutes of weights, somehow I don't manage to do it. So please put me in my place. (laughs) So it, it, of course, when you have the time, that's what you want to do is run. You know, you want to throw your shoes on and go outside. Exactly. Um, but 
strength training, I, I really look at it as it's supporting your running. It, it's not something that's going to, um, the, the old, that myth is that, you know, the more you strength train, you're going to add muscle bulk and then you're going to be a slower runner. I, I feel like that's, that's kind of the overall premise from years ago of what they used to, um, what a lot of people thought was strength training. Um, but the truth is, is everything they've seen with, with heavy loaded training is that it reduces the risk of running injury. It improves your running economy and it helps your performance. So it really does everything we want strength training to do. It helps to, you know, get us to the finish line in a, in a, a stronger way and, and get better running times. And, and they've seen that in research as well. So um, what I try to explain to, to runners though, is, you know, it doesn't mean going to the gym and doing two hours of strength training and you're working every muscle and because we don't want strength training to fatigue the system, right? We want, we want strength and strength training to complement our running. So you want to get in, get out with the biggest body movements that you can get without fatiguing you for your next run. So I teach, um, a lot of times when people first come in or a lot of patients that first come in, I have them start with learning the basics of a squat and a deadlift because those two movements are, are huge because they encompass so many different muscle groups. So those are big body movements, right? We use so many muscles when we do them and so many different um, joints tune in when we, when we do them. Um, so those two movement patterns. Once someone feels confident there and I see that they can tolerate that, then I bring in, you know, we would start with, um, if using the barbell, I have them first start with, with hand weights or a dumbbell. And then I try to progress people as much as I can to a barbell. Um, because that way we can really load everything up. Right. So, um, as they get better in terms of those movement patterns, I start them with more endurance-based training. So I start them with maybe three repetitions of 12, three repetitions of 15. But we don't want that rep scheme to hold throughout all of our training because that's more endurance-type training, right? We want strength training. So to get to strength training, we need heavier load with less repetitions. So I work people up to doing um, four, five, six repetitions for maybe four or five sets, right? So I, I, my, my favorite number is five sets of five, right? So I'm trying to get people to the point that they're doing squats or deadlifts with um, heavier load, and they're only doing five repetitions of them. So that's more the, the lower extremity. I also include um, chest press, overhead press, and rows as more big body movements for the upper extremity. And I rotate between them. But if a runner went to the gym and did squats, deadlifts, overhead press, chest press, and, you know, maybe some, if they had to tune into other things, like in terms of um, calf raises or things like that, but that, that for me is the biggest bang for my buck. Cause you're using the most muscles, the most joints, and, and you're getting the most out of it without walking out of there completely fatigued. So that's what I would say is, um, what I, what I tend to have patients do. And then when I'm getting them to that point that they're doing that heavier load, if I want to include anything else, a big thing that we really want to look at is, um, calf raises and seated calf raises because the calves are really, really underutilized, um, in terms of strength training and we don't strength train them enough. So I'll have them do the squats or the deadlifts or things like that first. And then after they do those big body movements, then I have them do things like calf raises, um, chop lift movements, maybe some bicep curls, triceps, things like that. But when you're getting into smaller movements that tune into one or two muscles at a time, we want to save those to the end of your workout because we really want the big body things first and then the smaller movements after. And that encompasses how I put together a, a, a strength workout. Nice. That's cool. That was a lot. That was a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, it it kind of makes sense. And then how often? I mean, how many times do you recommend a runner do that per week? So I have um, if someone's off season, like I'm off season right now, I'm strength training twice a week. And then when you get more in season or closer to your race, then you can trim it back to like once a week. But you really ideally want two times a week for most of your training. 
Oh, that's that's not so bad. I thought it would be something you have to do every day. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Well, because you don't even have to, because when you're doing that heavier load, you don't you're getting enough out of that, that you need the recovery from that at the same time. So you wouldn't want to stack that up. You know, I just do two times a week, but I get in, I do the bigger body movements. I cut, like I said, a couple of things at the end of the workout. And that's really what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 Oh, that mm-hmm. sounds, that sounds actually not so bad. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. <laughs> just make sure you, you do work out with someone who can really look at your movement. Cause if you start using a barbell and your, your squat or, or, you're dead, not deadlifting properly, then what can happen is, of course, then you can increase your rate of injury in terms of strength training. So you want to just make sure that you're going with somebody who's spotting you or, or um, looking at how you're doing things or videoing you and, you you know, making sure, especially working, of course, with like a trainer or a PT. But if you don't have access to that and you really just wanted to strength train, I would go with somebody who can, you know, you guys can look at that together. But ideally, of course, you want somebody to who's a trained professional to look at your positioning. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So moving on to the third one I have written down is, well, I have written down, you need to hold stretches before you run. But gener- I mean, I guess in general, stretching is one of the myths. So do we really need to stretch and which stretches are good or not good for us? Um, okay, so stretching, that's always, I feel like that's everyone's go-to before a race. You see everyone stretching at like the, the start line. And, um, that's always kind of being like, you got to stretch, you got to stretch. Um, and stretching is great. You just want to make sure that you stretch after you run. So if you think about what the, what the body's doing, when you stretch, you're, you're taking a muscle, you're lengthening it and, and you're statically holding that position. Right. So, and then when we go out for a run, we want that same muscle to, to shorten and lengthen and and contract quickly for us as we run. So if you think about how you would want to prep your body before running in order to, to utilize, you know, what we're asking the muscle to do, we would want to do more dynamic activity beforehand, because that's what we're doing. We're, we're doing a dynamic activity to prep us for a dynamic movement. Right. So butt kicks, high knees, um, Frankenstein walks, walking calf raises, um, walking lunges, things like that. Anything to prep your body in terms of you might be going to end range position of certain joints, but you're doing it in a dynamic way. And you always just want to start with um, less intensity and build up your intensity. You don't want to just start all of a sudden trying to like kick your butt and like, <laughs> you know, do, do it so aggressively that, you know, but um, you know, just start slowly and, and make sure that your body feels warmed up as you go through your actual warm up. you know, and that those are the activities that we want to do beforehand. Um, afterwards, stretching. I love to stretch right after I run. Cause I feel like my muscles are warm. Uh, it, it, feels good. And even later that night, if I'm sore, I love to stretch. Um, we want to hold a stretch for about 15 to 30 seconds. Um, at least 15 seconds. So the big, the big muscle groups that I tell people to stretch, of course, is hamstrings, um, calves, quadriceps, glutes. Um, you could also do some like, um, thoracic spine things where, you know, you're doing open books or, or things like that for the spine. Um, and you want to hold those stretches for 15 to 30 seconds, about two to four repetitions. They do see within research that adults or or runners that are, that are over the age of 65, you would ideally want to hold a stretch for 60 seconds. You would want to hold it a little bit more to get the same benefit. Um, and you just want to make sure you're not bouncing at, at end range, but, um, yeah. Stretching is, it's good. It's just, where are you placing it? You know, and you want to make sure that you're putting it after a run versus beforehand. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So the next one on my list is side stitches are because you're out of shape. And I think that's obviously a myth because when we start running in the very beginning, we get side stitches. So maybe can you hop into that one? Yes. So side stitches are the worst. I remember getting them. I just remember getting them in high school when I was like in gym class and I was like, what what is going on? Um, so side stitches, I did a whole, um, 
I did a whole like uh, uh, continuing education course on them because I, I really wanted to figure out what causes cramping and side stitches and things like that. And um, so there's theories behind what they think side stitches are. Is it is it something happening, a spasm happening at your diaphragm? Is it um, the soft tissues surrounding the, the abdominal cavity in the diaphragm that are getting pulled or uncomfortable? You know, so the theory, they, they don't really know what exactly causes them. But when they happen during your run, the biggest thing that you want to do is make sure you get a get control of your breathing. So inhaling and exhaling really deeply, um, fully and deeply. Um, you can also slow down, adjust your pace. Sometimes it could be a few. Sometimes it really is people that they're in great shape. They go out too hard, though. You know, and then all of a sudden you get the side stitch. So it's, it's getting control of the breathing. It's maybe adjusting your pace and you can massage the area when it's happening. Um, but the biggest things that they've seen that you can do to prevent them are, um, making sure that you're not having a big meal within two to three hours to the start of your run, um, avoiding drinks with high processed sugar content prior to your run, um, include a full warm up that, that includes dynamic activities that might have abdominal or, or trunk rotation. Um, so like the, if you're doing walking lunges, you would want to include a little rotation, um, Maintaining a strength program that also addresses planks, side planks, things like that. Um, taking small sips when you're drinking during your runs. Sometimes people will get them if they take if they drink too much water too quickly. Um, and then just making sure that you're not making too big a leaps in your training. Because I mean, they can happen if you're going out and you're getting used to to running again. You haven't ran in a while, or you're just picking up running, and you, you go out for and you're not understanding why it's happening. So it could really be that it's just too much too soon. Um, but the other big factor, like I said, is if someone's well trained, they're just going out too hard, or whether you know what was their nutrition that day, and, and things like that. Um, if they keep happening, I think it's something that can be individualized. So it's something that, you know, you could talk to a dietitian about someone who specializes with runners and see maybe if it's something that you're, that you're having, I would make sure that, um, you're including a strength program and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, they suck. <laughs> <laughs> they suck and they've happened to all of us, but that, but I hope those are suggestions that can at least help us to when they happen. <laughs> Yes, definitely. It's so funny that you actually researched that uh, topic before. I didn't know that was anything ever anybody ever thought about as much. <laughs> I know, but I, I'm a nerd and I found a course with it, of course. So. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So myth number five is barefoot running reduces injuries. And I guess that's, you know, because of all the trends we went from in the early 2010s, I think the vibrant five finger shoes came out where people barely wore anything and went to minimalist. And now we have the hokas that have extra padding. So clear it up for us, please. Okay. So I, this goes in combination with one of the later myths when we're going to talk about, um, foot strike. Um, Irene Davis is another, uh, another researcher I'm going to throw out because she, um, she does fantastic work. She, she talks about the evolution of running, why we used to run, you know, we used to run to hunt down our food and we used to be barefoot in those times or just have, you know, what they used to make in order to have something on the bottom of their foot. Um, but, and we talk about, you know, she's very big on talking about how your foot strike has, has changed from you know, how humans foot strikes has changed from years ago until now we're getting into the 1960s and 70s when the evolution of these running sneakers came out and how our four, how our forefoot heel strike, how our foot strike overall has changed. Um, so she does, she's done podcasts and things like that. She's, she's great to listen to um, in terms of talking about what's, what's happened there. But yes, of course, in the 2000s, when barefoot running reduces injuries, right? Everybody was like, oh, okay, I, I'll switch to barefoot running. But the, the truth of the matter is there's no foot strike that is superior over another. You have to have proper support no matter what it is. And when I mean support, I mean, do you have enough strength? Do you have enough range of motion? Do you have enough of those things to support whatever um, foot strike you're using? Right. So barefoot running, the idea is that when you take off your shoes, you're automatically going to start running on the forefoot 
because it, it, in our heads, it lessens the impact, right? But that, that ground reactive force is always going to be there. It, we can't take that away. That's going to happen no matter what. We land on the ground, force gets put back up through our body. It's just the way that it is. But where that force and where everything goes changes depending on which, which way you're striking your foot. Um, when you're forefoot striking, you're placing more of that energy within your calves and within the ankle, right? When you're landing more on your heel, you're placing more of that energy into the knee and more of the quadriceps. So it depends on where you're putting the energy and what support you have for that. So people started barefoot running without the, the strength in their calves. Like you have to have the, the Achilles tendon has to be ready. The calf muscles have to be ready without them being ready. You're now just changing up your foot strike without your body's trying to adjust to that change. And it doesn't have the adequate strength or endurance to be able to do that. So the biggest thing, if, if, um, and, and barefoot run, there are people that are comfortable barefoot running. And that's not something that I would ever change in somebody. Um, if they, if they're comfortable running like that, it's just making sure that you have the support if you're going to make that change and, um, someone who, and, and there's no research that says, you know, barefoot running and landing on your forefoot is more advantageous than heel striking, wearing a sneaker. So it's, it's, where the research lies, it's not really telling us that one way to run is better than another. Um, but each person is different. So I do believe that every person has their, the, the blueprint to their running that, that they feel the most comfortable in. And I wouldn't necessarily change someone's running unless I really saw, okay, they have repetitive injury. They continue to wear these shoes and they're overstriding, you know, things like that. That's when you start to look to make that change. But just by switching to pair barefoot running, it's not just going to change your injury. It just might change where the location of your injury is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess now at this time, we're more in a place where we have all the options, the barefoot, mm -hmm. the minimalist and the extra cushion. So I guess we can now figure out what's best for us. Mm -hmm. You know, they have seen that those those minimalist shoes work best for people that forefoot and technically are barefoot running, you know, that it, it does give them at least a little bit of um, something in between you and the road. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So on to the next one. The next one that I have is every runner gets injured. Okay. So what's crazy is over 75% of runners are injured per year, right? And, and injury means you're, you're out for a few days. You have to hold back from running for some reason, right? Um, so not every runner, there's still 25%. <laughs> and of course, that's an estimate. It, it is an estimate, but um, there are some, some fixable things that are very um, tangible that people can either change or adjust to their training that can just reduce their risk of injury. Um, the biggest factor that contributes to running injuries is training errors. So it's too much too soon, not getting enough recovery, um, running hard every single time you go out and run, um, running on hills every time you run, um, running on the same side of the road every, every time you go out. Um, not properly warming up. You know, those are just training errors that can be fixed that reduce your risk in a, in a major way. Um, so, you know, we talk about the, with my coaching, we talk a lot about the 80, 20 rule. So that's, it's, it's a newer idea where your 80% of your running is at a nice, easy conversation pace. And then 20% of your runs are at that harder or whatever speed work you're doing and, and things like that. But they're seeing that that can have better control in terms of injury risk because you're not running at your max pace every time you go out and run. So a lot of people feel like they're not improving their endurance because they're not running hard. And, it, and they're seeing that you can reduce injury risk, maintain your endurance by running easy 80% of your week. And then that 20 and more elite runners, you know, they might have 30% or something like that, but um, 
they're hard running is, is you have so much energy behind those runs because you haven't used up all your energy in the other 80%, you know, um, another big factor with running injuries is biomechanics and, and how you're running. And that's one of the things I do here is I look at, um, are you overstriding? Do you cross over when you're running? Or is there what's called medial collapse? And, and there's things that you can adjust with your, and of course, when we were talking about strike and things like that, you just want to make sure that you look at those things with a trained professional, because it's very hard to try to change your running without having someone properly guide you. Um, they're also seeing in terms of um, injury risk, strength deficits, it, not including the strength program. Letty, you got to include the strength. <laughs> um, and of course, prior history of injury and anatomical structure, some other things that they've seen that, that um, can contribute to injury. But, but the biggest thing that you can change is the strength training, um, training errors, and then having it, looking at your running biomechanics and, and things like that. So it's, it is, there are ways that you can reduce your injury risk. It's just, um, you know, taking care of those things. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I wanted to tell you my first 10 years of running, I ran marathons, but I never fully trained, trained. So I wasn't overtraining. I was just running at whatever pace I wanted to, whenever uh -huh. I wanted to. And in those first 10 years, I never once had an injury. And then I started training with a coach and following a program and really pushing it. And of um, course, not doing strength training. And suddenly there was plantar fasciitis and then there was an injury to my Achilles. And now, I mean, God knows I've got some joint effusion going on that is not going away because I'm not letting it rest enough. But I can totally see how that can happen when you constantly overtrain, constantly push it rather than just kind of go to what you said, you know, doing the 80, 20 percent. Yeah, just sometimes it, it depends on the coach and, and their philosophy, but I, I have the rehab side. So I look at it from like the physical therapy side where I want to preserve people to be able to run for the rest of their life and not just, oh, they need to hit this. And then, you know, whatever happens after that, whatever, you know, but it, that, I don't look at it like that. I look at it like I want to get them to this marathon, but I want them to be able to run a marathon 10 years from now, you know? So I look at it more from like the, the injury prevention side, I feel like as well. So let me know. I'll coach you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So the next one that I have is flexibility is super important for a runner. So, um, yes. So I, I think it goes hand in hand with the stretching. We, we love stretching. It feels good, you know? Um, but the truth is you don't, you really, really don't need that much range of motion in our joints. We don't need that much flexibility to actually run, right? Because we're, unless you're talking about sprinters when you're, you know, they're at such max speeds and how much rain you look at their hips and, and when you're going out recreational running or distance running, we're not, there's not a huge demand in terms of how much range of motion we hit and how much flexibility we have, right? So the, the only, there's, there's three particular joints that, um, I do look at in terms of how much range of motion do they have? And, it, and it's tough because is the joint limiting somebody? Is it the muscle length on the opposite side? What is limiting the person? So, and that's part of, of the evaluation, but um, the biggest, uh, the three big ones are hip extension. So that's when your leg is coming back after um, the leg pushes off from the ground. You have to have at least like 11 degrees, they sit, you know, between 10 and 12 degrees of hip extension to be able to, um, in terms of limiting any kind of compensations, that's the number that I, we tend to look for. Um, ankle dorsiflexion. So ankle dorsiflexion is if you looked at your foot and you asked your foot to come up towards you, right? So your leg is straight and out in front of you, you're bringing your toes and your ankle up towards you. That motion is important because at mid stance, when we're putting the most, um, when we're putting our base of support over our leg like that, our knee has to bend and come forward. So all of a sudden you have to have a decent amount of ankle, um, 
ankle dorsiflexion to be able to allow the knee to come forward. So if you picture a runner and you're, you're looking at them from the side, right, and you see them run across and as that standing leg, the one that's on the ground, that knee has to bend and it comes over the toes. So to be able to perform that stride, you have to have a decent amount of ankle dorsiflexion to do that. So sometimes when people don't have that, that's why you'll see people running with their their feet more out or their foot more collapsed or um, compensations at the hip or the trunk, or you'll, you could see compensations up the whole body. But um, that's uh, one area that in particular that I look at for runners. Um, the, uh, the last one is toe extension. So your big toe has to be able to come up towards you a, a decent amount because when you're at push off and that standing leg, you're at the end of, of your stride with that standing leg, that leg that's on the ground. When you have to bring that leg up to clear it, to bring it up into the air, you have to have enough of that toe extension to be able to clear that foot. Otherwise the leg might, the, the, the foot might push off early and then you're leading to other compensations. So those three areas are the ones in particular that I look at to make sure does someone have enough of that flexibility, um, that joint mobility and that, that muscle length to be able to, um, to perform their running stride without compensations. Um, but the, the biggest thing that they're seeing too, with flexibility is it's of course, stretching is something that we all love, but performing those heavy weighted exercises, like we were talking about, but so calf length, we want to have enough calf length because if we don't, that could limit us. So how we would improve calf strength and in terms of um, flexibility of that muscle is performing like the calf raises off of a step or something like that, where our toes and our forefoot are on a step, the heels are coming down and they don't have any limiters. So they're coming past neutral. Exercises like that can really help to improve um, range of motion if the muscle is what's limiting um, that motion. Um, other things I have people do is I have them do mobilization exercises um, for those particular joints and, and things like that. And there's, there's a lot of videos and, and Instagram's really great in that way where there's a lot of different videos and things. How do you improve your hip extension? How do you improve your ankle dorsiflexion? There's a lot out there that, um, it's just making sure that you're not, um, I have runners perform those things before they run. So have them do ankle mobilizations, um, maybe some hip mobility things before they run. And um, those kind of, th that's the only, in terms of flexibility or, or things that might be limiting factors, that's what I tend to look at. The truth is, is if you don't have any kind of injuries and, and you're out there running, I would not even think of flexibility as something that's, that you have to really focus on because you don't need a ton of flexibility when running. So unless you have something going on particular, that that's what, as a physical therapist, that's what I, I investigate, you know, is, is, you know, what's going on at the ankle, what's going on at the toe. And, but the, like I said, the overall, um, in regards to flexibility and running, we don't need a ton of flexibility unless it's causing some kind of compensation. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for that. That's uh, interesting. So let's go to myth number eight. And I guess you kind of talked about it already a little bit um, about heel striking because the myth is heel striking is bad for you. Mm -hmm. um, I've had runners come in and they're like, oh, my God, I know I'm a heel striker and I have to change. And I'm like, it's not like a it's not like a, a curable thing. They have to, you know, and people get get hung up on it because. Um, like we said, different ideas come in and the barefoot running and different, different ideas come in and out. And, and we think that, um, we're doing something wrong. And, and the, the truth is, is every, like I said, every single runner is different. We have a stride that we feel comfortable with. That's what we tend to fall into because that's, what's comfortable for us. Um, so as, as I said before, the, whichever heel strike your you tend to perform, it just, that's where you're placing the energy, right? So like I said, the, the heel strikers, there's, there's more into the um, quadriceps and the knees. That's why people who, um, I'll go into that later. Sorry, so sorry. Um, 
Then you have four foot strikers. That's more the energy is going into the calves and more loading goes into the ankle. So it's just, as I said before, the, the support of whichever way that you're landing, you're just changing where the ground reactive force goes. Um, so it's not that one strike is superior over another. It's just, do you have, you know, it, it, I look at someone's strike and then I look at, okay, is there, um, are they performing a, is something happening with their running biomechanics that's causing an issue, right? So I'm looking at overstriding. I'm looking at that medial collapse and I'm looking at crossover. Those are three big things that I look at with runners on the treadmill, right? So overstriding just means that you're landing too far out from your body. You can do that as a forefoot striker or a heel striker. It doesn't really matter. Both can, can have that particular um, trait in your running biomechanics that we know is something we want to avoid. So it doesn't, all I'm saying is that it, it doesn't matter which strike you are. I'm looking more at, okay, I'm taking that into consideration, but I'm looking at what are the things that actually we know could cause harm to you, which is that overstriding the medial collapse and the crossover when you run, does someone have injuries with that? That's what I'm focusing on changing, not necessarily getting them to strike a certain way because that's not just going to equate to less injury. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you kind of explained that earlier a little bit that there's no such thing as a perfect running stride and that we're all just different, kind of like with mm -hmm. the shoes. Mm -hmm. I love running shoes. <laughs> 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 All right, let's talk about number nine. And that is that the best running cadence is 180 um, steps per minute. And I guess the answer kind of follows the same question, right? Mm -hmm. So I, um, I, this is one of the things I included in one of the reels that I did. By the way, reels take so much work on Instagram. <laughs> I just learned them and I'm like, I'm like oh my God, they it, it takes me hours to put together one video. Um, but you're but pretty good at them. I mean, <laughs> I try, but, but it's a great way that I, I have all this information on my, my website. So I've done the past few years, I've tried to get, like I said, anytime that I, I took courses or I learned anything, I put together posts about it and I wanted to put it somewhere. So I put everything on my website. Uh, revolutionrunningcompany.com. Just so you know. Um, but so I, I'm taking that information and now figuring out how to put it into a reel. And it, it takes a lot more time than even like the research for the information. So um, how funny though, that that's, that's exactly what you got you onto my podcast. <laughs> oh, good. Also the reels work. Okay, good. They work. Um, so the They got the number 180, right? This number circulates all the time. And they that was a observational study in 1984, in the 1984 Olympics, where they looked at runners and they looked at their cadence. And they saw that most, almost every runner had a, over 180 cadence, but some of them had 180, 190, 220. They were all different um, There was all different types of, of, of cadence to each runner. So no matter what research they've done, they have not seen that hitting 180 or above is automatically going to change. It, it's automatically going to reduce injury. There's no magic number because every runner runs differently, you know, like we said. So um, it's actually harmful sometimes when people are trying to hit 180 and then they feel like they're completely out of breath and they're like, why am I so out of breath? Because because your body's not ready for that big of a, of a change. Um, but there is no, that 180 is just that's coming from Olympians, you know, of, of so that number is something I try to get people to to just try to forget in terms of, of that number and think more about what is your individual cadence and what can we do with that? So like I said, overstriding, right? So if someone lands too far out from their, their base of support, that means their, their leg is reaching too far out and say they're coming in and they've had a couple of different bouts of knee pain. All right. Well, the easiest way to change someone's um, that get somebody to overstride less is by increasing their cadence. So I take the, the person's cadence that they have outside because it is different from the treadmill. So, okay, they look at their garment and they see, you know, it's, it's 160 or something like that. I take that number and then I only increase it by 5%. 
So just increasing that number by 5%, I think it brings us to, to 168 or 160. I think this is what 5% of it is, uh, you know, maybe 166. Um, so increasing that number will allow the person to land a little bit closer in towards their body, not necessarily change their heel strike. They, it just allows them to land closer in towards their body and can help to reduce the, um, that strain that might be happening at the knee or the hip or things like that, because you're landing closer underneath your base of support. So I change some, I look at cadence based on what that individual person's cadence is, how I would want to manipulate it in order to um, change a biomechanics that I saw that might be hindering their running or, or increasing their injury risk. And we adjust it that way, but I would not get stuck on the 180 because the truth is, is that's not scientifically proven to reduce injury automatically. So it's, it's, but cadence is a great way to manipulate your running. You just want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's, you know, appropriate for you. Yes. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. It's thank you mm -hmm. for telling is also where that came from. <laughs> It is that magic number that's out there. Nobody really knows. We just I know what everyone and then I'll have runners at their normal cadence is like 150 and then they're trying for 180. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, you're 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 completely out of breath, you know, and if they're out of breath because their their system can't you're making such a big leap. So they're seeing that that five even you can get up to 10 percent that that percentage of change can help influence how you're you're landing, but it won't overload your system where it's, it's causing you to be out of breath, you know? Right. Right. It's kind of the heart rate training, right? Because not everybody falls into that basic formula of 220 mm -hmm. minus your age, because exactly. that's not my heart rate, but then how do you even know? Mm -hmm. Cookie cutter things aren't going to work. It's not going to work for everybody. Yep. All right. Mm -hmm. So the last one I have is myth number 10 and it's resting makes you lose fitness. And I think we all kind of believe that it does, but we don't know where the fine line is of <laughs> resting for good for recovery versus resting a little bit too much. So it's, I think the big question with that is where are you in your training, right? So if you're training for a marathon and you take three weeks off before your marathon and don't run at all, well, it's a little rough, you know, that might not be the best, um, idea, but, um, it depends on where you are in your training. So, so like I have some high school runners that are coming in and they're going back to back with their seasons, right? They're going back to back. They're going, they're doing cross country. Then they're doing winter running. Then they're doing track Then they're doing summer run and there's, there's no off season. So I do think that there's, there really is value in an off season and off season doesn't necessarily mean you completely stop running. It just means you may back down your mileage. You may, um, you know, take more rest days and allow your body to have that time. It doesn't necessarily mean you're losing your, your fitness. I mean, you have to also compare it to if you stop running for a month, there will be some changes by taking that whole month off. You know, that's, that's what's going to happen, but I'm not saying that there's not value in every year you reduce maybe to two weeks of no running. So after I did it, I did the New York city marathon this year. It was so awesome. By the way, it was amazing. It was amazing. Unbelievable. Um, I took two weeks off after I didn't run. I didn't, I let my body rest. Now, of course, coming back into it, I was very slow coming back into my runs. I did like two miles every other day. Then I increased it to three every day and, and slowly increased that. But there is value in allowing yourself to have that recovery time because I have even clients that I'm coaching that I have to try to like reel them in there. They, everybody gets so amped after they do a marathon and then they're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to do another one in April. And then they're, they're not giving themselves any of that time off to like recoup and, and you have to allow that recovery to happen. It just depends of course, what, whether we're talking about how many weeks and how much do you really lose fitness? You know, if you're hitting like a month, it does, you will kind of, you know, that month off is, is it's going to take you some time to get back into it. Um, and you will lose some fitness in that sense. Yes. But, um, taking two weeks off and slowly getting back into it 
two weeks or one week rest is something that I do think is ideal to include in every, every season. Um, and just because you take one day off or two days off in your training plan, that's another thing too. People, runners tend to, okay, they missed a workout and, and they feel like, oh my God, I have to make up that workout. No, just continue with your training program. Keep going. And let that day be what it is. Maybe you needed some extra time, you know, so it doesn't necessarily equate. It just depends on how much time we're, we're talking off and, and where you are in your season. And, you know, like I said, if you have a race coming up and you take a month off, well, you're increasing your injury risk just by running that. Cause, cause you didn't run to, to prep the, those four weeks. Right. But if you're taking a few days off here and there from your training plan, and that's just what happens in life, that's just life. You know, you kind of just move forward. But, um, I do find a lot of value in letting yourself have the recovery, letting yourself, um, in, enjoy that time off for me, it, it, that two weeks off, let me center myself, um, get my feet back on the ground and just kind of refocus and get more sleep is what that did. So sleep is always good. Yes, it is. I loved it. I got like 10 hours a day. I somehow with the toddler, I got, I was getting like nine, 10 hours a night. I was like, this is fabulous. But yeah. Oh my gosh. Please tell me what you feed your toddler because mine. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I can't say that because two nights ago he woke up at one o'clock in the morning and you know, we're getting like two hours of sleep. So it, it depends on the night, but sometimes he let me see. It's like, he knew about the marathon. So he let me rest a little. He worked out that <laughs> timing for you. That's nice of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Natalie, so much for coming on. And I want our listeners to be able to find you. So please let us know where they can find you and also where you share your reels. Oh, <laughs> um, so on Instagram, it's natalie.dpt. So it's N-A-T-A-L-I-E dot D-P-T. Um, the Instagram for Rev Running, the, the business I opened is Rev, uh, R-E-V, Running PT. Um, my website is revolutionrunningcompany.com. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. I have a phone and stuff too, but I don't know if anybody's going to be calling. Well, thank you so much for your time and all your expertise. And hopefully we can have you back on soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Natalie, for coming on and speaking with us. I had a blast talking to you before and after the interview as well. And I hope to run into you in one of our future races. I hope our races overlap and that we stay in touch. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week. We're going to have an interview with the world champion, Leslie Cohen, the world champion of marathons in her age group. And that's a really fun conversation that we've already got for you. So until next time. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, head to www.runningpodcast.us and as always, have a great week of running.